let's ask God now to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your promise uh, that your word uh, brings light into our lives. Uh, we pray uh, that we would know the light in, of your truth in the darkness of our confusion. We pray that this word we look at today would help us to trust Jesus for life and equip us uh, to live as his people. And help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly in my weakness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, from the first decade of the Christian movement, uh, Christians were on the road in the Roman Empire and beyond, and this movement only increased as the first century went on as there were more churches and more believers. So there were evangelists, preachers, teachers, prophets, travelling from city to city, from congregation to congregation, relying on the hospitality of the Christians in each place. And while, as we saw in 2 John last week, this movement created a need to be discerning about people bringing in false teaching into a congregation, and while, as the early church learned, their hospitality could be exploited by charlatans and the idle, most of these people were on the road to spread the gospel and to strengthen believers in the truth. For behind the immediate causes of their travel, whether that might say have been persecution or being sent out by a church, behind the immediate causes of their travel was the great purpose of God being realised in the work of our Lord Jesus. That God would have a people of his very own from every tribe and language and people and nation to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And so from the start, the gospel was for all nations. All people had to hear. The Lord Jesus had said that uh, people would come from east and west, from north and south to share in the banquet in the kingdom of God. And that as the good shepherd, he had other sheep who are not from this sheep pen beyond the Jewish nation whom he must call. And as we know, his final command was that his disciples were to make disciples of all nations. Jesus' ministry itself was the fulfilment of God's big purpose. God's purpose declared in his dealings with Abraham and his descendants to bring blessing to all peoples through them. God's saving purpose declared right at the beginning in Genesis 3 in the prophecy of Eve's offspring crushing the servant's head and developed in his dealings with Abraham's offspring, that is in the history of the people of Israel, has always included all people. As you heard, the servant of the Lord would be a light to the nations, God's salvation to the ends of the earth. In the Psalms, say Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all nations, glorify him, all peoples. All peoples are summoned to praise him. As the Lord declared in Isaiah, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn truth has gone out from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow to me. And every tongue will swear allegiance. God will be the saviour of the world. And so whatever the means God used to call you, 
to faith. Your parents, friend, Christian union, all of us are believers ultimately because of this great purpose of God that he's included us in his saving purpose, people really in Australia at the ends of the earth. So to be a Christian is to know yourself, to be part of something bigger. And that something bigger is not some human organisation or plan, useful as those things might be. It's not being part of a denomination or a parachurch organisation or a missionary society. No, this something bigger is the movement of overflowing love that has sent the Son into the world to give life to all who believe in him. God's purpose, to save a people for himself from every nation, tribe and tongue through his Son and his Son's death. And 3 John, as you heard, is about one important way as individuals and as congregations we express part of being we express being part of this bigger purpose. And that way, as you heard, is by supporting missionaries and gospel workers, those who have, in verse 7, gone out for the sake of the name. That is, those who have gone out so that all the world would know the truth of Jesus, that Jesus is the only, the unique Son of God, the Lord with all authority, the one to whose name every knee will bow. And that forgiveness and adoption as God's children, eternal life, is found in believing in his name. Believing in him as he has revealed himself to be in his incarnation, ministry, death and rising. 3 John gives us John's encouragement to Gaius, the recipient of the letter, to keep supporting those missionaries. But as you heard, it's also a warning in his comments on Diotrephes about refusing that support. And in Diotrephes, we see the reality of those who call themselves Christians but refuse to be engaged in the bigger purpose, the bigger mission of God, by refusing to welcome and support those sent out with the gospel. The elder to the beloved Gaius. John the Apostle, the author of John's Gospel 1 and 2, John again introduces himself as the elder because he's writing to one who knows him and his role in the church well. So he needs no further introduction. And unlike 2 John, 3 John is clearly a personal letter addressed to an individual, Gaius, for whom John has great personal affection. And Gaius is someone who probably has a role in his church, a church which is associated with the church in which this other bloke, Diotrephes, is claiming leadership. So perhaps Gaius is an elder in a neighbouring church in the same town or area because he's actually aware of Diotrephes and he's exposed to his influence amongst believers. And John starts by telling Gaius of his prayers for him and the great encouragement he's received from the witness of others to Gaius's faithfulness. And notice... His prayer, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. His prayer encompasses not just his spiritual well-being, of which he's confident, he's also praying for his health and prospering. It's right to pray these things for our brothers and sisters, particularly in the context of our concern for their whole person and their whole service, to pray that they're sustained physically and materially as well as spiritually, 
And John lets Gaius know, verses 3 and 4, how encouraged he is by his persevering faithfulness. The joy it gives him to hear from those who have been with him that Gaius is walking in the truth. Now, it's actually worth pausing to think about this joy and its cause. To walk in the truth is to have your thinking and acting. What you do and what you say directed by and conformed to the truth, the reality that Jesus come in the flesh, Jesus who was crucified, is the Son of God whose word is truth. The Son who saves us by his death and make all who believe in him God's children. And so walking in the truth embraces not just doctrinal orthodoxy, but a commitment to live a life pleasing to our Father. A life characterised as John has taught in 1 John by righteousness and love. And so those believers, uh, that believers should walk in the truth has been John's consistent teaching. And now John's hearing from others that Gaius' life manifests evidence, plain to see or by all, that he is walking in the truth. And he tells Gaius that this is a great joy for him, that he can have no greater joy. Now, brothers and sisters, if we believe and love the truth ourselves, we ought to be people like John, people who have joy when those we love are walking in the truth. For that joy is the expression of the love of God and love of neighbour, the truth nurtures in us. It's an expression of love of God because somebody walking in the truth is honouring God as he's revealed himself to be in Christ. And if we love God as the gospel moves us to, as the spirit changes us to, God's honour and glory is the desire of our hearts. And so to see another giving him that honour is a joy for us, a fulfilled desire. And joy at others walking in the truth is an expression of love of neighbour. For their walking in the truth means that they have fellowship with the truth, with the Father and the Son. They know for themselves the Father's love, have eternal life and are kept from the evil one, eternally secure. And what more could you wish for one you love? So we ought to be people like John, people who can have no greater joy than learning those we love are walking in the truth. So two questions. First, is that the case with you? Is there no greater joy for you than knowing someone you love is walking in the truth, trusting and following the Lord Jesus? So think for a moment about the joy you might have experienced so far in life. Perhaps it's when you got engaged, knew that that other person would commit themselves to you. Perhaps it's when you nursed your baby in your arms and you you or your family were safely delivered. Perhaps it's when you were a graduate. Maybe it's when you knew you were forgiven by God. All causes of joy. Is that what you know when you see someone you love walking in the truth? So parents, will you have no greater joy than seeing your children trusting and following the Lord Jesus, even if it means their life takes a different course from the one you might have desired or planned for them. Even if it means they don't pursue that career or economic security, you might wish for them, but give themselves to serve the Lord in preaching, teaching, evangelism here or in more dangerous places. Husbands, wives, will it be your greatest joy to know that in your wife or husband's heart there is someone more important 
than you. The Lord Jesus, whose will comes before your desires, that give you joy. Friends, will there be no greater joy than seeing your friend walking in the truth, even if it means you grow apart because faithfulness to Jesus takes you to different places? So ask yourself, is your love of God and love of neighbour seen in your joy? That's the first question. Do you have no greater joy than knowing one you love is walking in the truth, trusting and following the Lord Jesus? Oh, and the second question, would your life bring joy to the Lord's apostle? Does it bring joy to the believers who love you? Or actually is it causing concern and even grief? Are you actively conforming your thinking and acting to the truth that Jesus is Lord in ways that are plain to see? Because there are many ways, aren't there, that walking in the truth can show in our conversation, whether it's thoughtful and considerate or not, what we let our eyes look at, how we treat those around us, whether we relate with kindness and humility or just selfishness. What orders your life? You can encourage your brothers and sisters, give them joy, which is a scarce commodity in our world, just by living a life transparently committed to walking in the truth. But John focuses here on one aspect of walking in the truth, and that is supporting those who, directed by the truth, bring the truth to others. Beloveds, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. John says he's particularly encouraged by Gaius' support of Christian missioners, a faithful thing, by loving them, by providing them with hospitality and support for their journey. And he characterises these brothers and sisters firstly as strangers, people Gaius hasn't known before, people Gaius is not obligated to by personal or other relationship, what he's doing for them. It's because he loves them for Jesus' sake, for whose honour they're travelling. And he characterises them further in verse 7 by thinking about their motive and the manner in which they do their work. They have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. That is, they're on the road, leaving their homes for the sake of the name, for Jesus' sake. They are travelling so the truth about Jesus can be known and so that other people knowing and believing the truth about Jesus can become his disciples, that is, be saved. And in confessing Jesus, Saviour and Lord, give him the honour and praise he deserves. So they're not in it for themselves. They're seeking, like Paul, to bring about the obedience of his faith, obedience of faith for the sake of Jesus' name. And they're not seeking to enrich themselves. That's seen in the manner in which they conduct themselves in their mission. They're accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Now, by speaking of Gentiles, John's indicating that the people they're going to are pagans, idolaters. And by accepting nothing, he's not talking about a freely given drink of water or an offer of hospitality by an interested hearer. John's talking about money. They are giving the gospel freely to unbelievers. And that distinguishes them from wandering pagan philosophers and priests and also from the false teachers Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians who sought to market the word of God for profit, making the gospel available free of charge, both honoured 
God, who in love has made salvation free to us, depending on what the Son has done for us and not what we do for God. And it also kept the message of God's grace uncorrupted, unconfused. You see, in the ancient world where there were many gods and it was accepted that you could buy their favour by giving to their priests or their temple, giving even to a new god was seen as a kind of insurance policy, stopping you getting offside with the powerful. So if these missionaries had gone about seeking money and gifts from the pagans, those pagans would have understood Jesus as just one more new god, a god amongst many gods whose favour they could buy. Accepting nothing from the pagans meant that these preachers could preach Jesus as he is, not one amongst many, but the only Lord who deserves all because he has freely given all to save. And it was the kind of support guys showed John, and John is encouraging, that allowed gospel preachers to both show the generosity of God in the gospel, life given freely, and to keep the gospel clear and unconfused by the worldview of those to whom they came. And that's still true today. The support of believers like us allows those who go out for the sake of the name to non-believers to give the gospel freely, to not be stained by the suspicion that they're seeking wealth for themselves in calling people to Jesus. And it allows these preachers to proclaim the salvation the gospel brings as what God has graciously done for us and to put its radical demand for repentance and faith clearly and so confront the human pride that always wants to boast in human achievement and bargain with God. And John says to guys, you do well, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Now that's encouragement to Gaius to keep doing what Gaius is already doing, even though it costs and it's opposed by Diotrephes. And it does cost. The word translated send on their journey includes the idea of giving them what they need for their journey. It speaks of assisting someone in their travels by sending them with food or money or by arranging them to have a companion or providing means of travel, all things which cost. And John says it's a beautiful thing. That's the sense of the word well here. It's a beautiful thing to provide this support in a manner worthy of God. Now some of you may remember, some of you may not, what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 10 to the apostles, his messengers, as he sent them out to preach. The one who welcomes you welcomes me, and the one who welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. And again, what the Lord Jesus said to the sheep at the last day in Matthew 25, those who had fed and clothed, visited and sheltered believers, the one who welcomes... In Matthew 25, he says, as you did it to the least of the... Cutting and pasting is still a challenge, right? Uh, But Matthew 25, you can look it up, verse 4. As you did it to the least of these, my brethren. When when the sheep asked, when did we ever do anything good for you? Jesus said, as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. You see that? Jesus identifies himself with his gospel messengers. 
So Gaius and we should be conscious that in dealing with those who go out for the sake of the name, we're actually dealing with the Lord Jesus and with the Father who sent the Lord Jesus into the world. We should support them in a manner worthy of God, treating them as we would want to treat the Lord Jesus. And which one of us believers would want Jesus to have the leftovers and not the main meal, be content with the spare change and not give him all he needed? And by the way, it is we. In verse 8, John moves Gaius to talk about what all believers, John moves from Gaius to talk about what all believers ought to do. Verse 8, therefore we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. We is, we all, John's including himself and every believer, we should support people like these, those who've gone out to bring honour to the name of Jesus by proclaiming the truth about him. And in supporting them, John says, we'll be fellow workers for the truth or with the truth. By supporting them, we show we're on the same team, Jesus' team. And such support is one important way we, all of us, can share in the big purpose of God, in the mission of Jesus to have a people from every nation. And if we love the truth, if we love the Lord Jesus, want his glory, we will be excited and grateful for each opportunity. But are we? Are we fellow workers for the truth, glad to share in the work by supporting those who have gone out for the sake of the name, whether that's in our university campuses or to other parts of Australia or overseas? Is that what we are doing? Now, I can answer that for the church. You know, from the beginning, this congregation has sought to welcome and encourage, to support all those the Lord Jesus raises up from amongst us or brings to us, like, say, Daniel and Tamami. Primarily, of course, we, we organise that through the missions committee if they're working in other places in northern Australia or overseas. And that support, yes, is expressed through our budget where we try and give 10% of the budget to gospel work outside the congregation. But that, you know, goes up and down a little. That's not only for those working overseas. There's provision there for local mission supporting those who work on university campuses. And yes, as a church, we seek to support by giving opportunities to engage in this work, to talk about their work in the mission-minded meetings and by regular prayer Sunday by Sunday. That's what we do collectively. And while we can always do more, the settled intent is always to support. So I can answer for the church, but only you can answer for you, for your heart. See, John is speaking to each of us when he says, we ought. So how are you going loving Jesus by loving those who have gone out with his good news? Because we have lots of opportunities to support practically with money, by praying, by staying in touch, by attending those mission-minded supporters. Oh, yeah, even serving on councils or area groups. We ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. But what we see in 3 John is that not all do. Not only does this bloke Diotrephes not share in, a work, in the work like this, 
He thinks no one should be supporting them. No one, right? You see verse 10, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So what's going on with this refusal? Now, if for a minute you can imagine yourself as a local church leader in the first century, you you might initially have some sympathy with Diotrephes. As you think of all those people unbidden, turning up on the doorstep of your community, and there you are, working away, trying to teach the truth, and these people come with the risk of importing false teaching into the congregation, and you might think, well, there's a quick and easy way to deal with this. I'll make a blanket rule. Nobody's welcome. And so nobody gets in with their false teaching. They'll save time and effort. And as a local leader, you might also think resources are limited. There's lots to do, hospitality costs. Oh, my people aren't rich. So I'll limit the demand to focus on local work. At first glance, you could think Diotrephes' actions, even though, yes, heavy-handed, were to protect the flock from the danger of false teachers and the risk of exploitation or taken to conserve local resources for focused work. You could think that, but it's not the case at all. John pinpoints the issue and exposes Diotrephes' heart for what it really is. Just a phrase, Diotrephes likes to put himself first. This is a bloke who has a love of preeminence. He isn't content to be a small part of a big purpose. He wants to be the star of his own show. So his concerns for himself and to ensure that he's in charge, that he controls everything. So moved by selfish ambition, because he likes to put himself first, Diotrephes seeks to isolate his church from other Christians, to separate himself from the big movement. There's to be no welcome of believers from outside his small circle. And he repudiates any authority external to this church. Even the authority of the apostles. The hour of verse 9 is not the royal plural. It's actually the apostolic group represented by John. Oh, and to make sure people only listen to him, he then goes on and slanders the apostle. You know, maybe he starts to spread rumours about John's orthodoxy or his zeal or his personal life. Because let's face it, it's easy enough to misrepresent what people say, twist their words and actions. And then verse 10, he abuses his authority. He makes being in the church dependent on submitting not to the Lord but to him and anyone who wants to act or think differently to him, out they go. Diotrephes actions, whatever he might claim, are not motivated by love of God's people. He is a controlling, bullying, egotistical leader who loves to be first. And we need to be alert because there will always be leaders like Diotrephes because they'll always get a following. You see, there'll be leaders like Diotrephes who tell their followers that only those who listen to them are really orthodox and only by sticking with him will they be kept safe. You see, they flatter their followers, don't they? As well as kind of coerce them by fear, but they're flattering by implying that, oh, his followers are the special ones, the ones with insight and faithfulness that others don't have. And then they slander other Christian leaders, even those whose lives and ministries are attested by the truth. And you can see that on on the net, right? But Diotrephes is self-condemned by his rejection and condemnation of the apostle 
whom Jesus appointed and commissioned with the truth. And those like him are self-condemned too by their failure to welcome those who have gone out for the sake of the name, those who are proclaiming the truth of Jesus to the world. To follow a leader like Diotrephes is at the very least impoverishing, robbing people of their reward for serving Jesus in serving his people, of the opportunity to be fellow workers for the truth. But the danger is greater. John warns us and Gaius, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does goods from God, whoever does evil, has not seen God. And we need this warning and encouragement because the temptation is always there to be like a diatrophies or to follow him. You see, it is tiring to be always vigilant about false teaching that others may bring. Easier just to shut yourself off. And you can become concerned about scant resources and a loss of focus on the good work going on locally. But we have to imitate good people like Gaius, for whoever does good is from God. Now, that verse shouldn't be taken out of context. It's not as if here alone scripture is saying that somebody who does good work, say, starts a charity, looks after an ill relative, is God's person, right with God because of the good they do. No, it's not saying that. The good John is speaking of is the good already spoken about in the letter, the good of sharing in the generosity and desire of our God who sent the Son into the world to save, the good of wanting others to hear that good news and be saved. It's the good which is trusting in God, the trust in God that uses what he has given us to support his people, looking to him to provide. Oh, the good is loving Jesus' people simply because they are his people and so supporting them in what they need in their gospel mission. It is this good we are to imitate and it's the practice of this good that shows that we are from God. For it shows our new birth that we've had our hearts transformed by the Spirit of God to love God in desiring his honour, in the honouring of his Son and to love others in wanting them to share the salvation we have. But the reality of Diotrephes and those like him is that whoever does evil has not seen God. Evil is loving preeminence and not welcoming and serving Jesus' people, those who have gone out into the world to share the gospel for the honour of Jesus. And where this evil is present, God's verdict, whatever a position, per position a person might hold in a church or a Christian organisation, God's verdict is that they have not seen God. They have never seen God's glory in Jesus, full of grace and truth. For if they had, they would live a life full of love of others and they'd love the truth and those who bring it. And that chilling verdict, and it is, they have not seen God, is inevitable where someone loves to be first, to be always in control. You see, if you love being first, you can't be part of something that's bigger than you and definitely not a part of God's big purpose because in that purpose Jesus is first. Loving preeminence. You'll always be competing with Jesus in church, at home, not following him. 
You'll be trying to supplant him in the lives of his people, not serving him. You'll be corrupting your position in the church to puff yourself up, not build others up. Loving to be first creates a leadership that is exactly the opposite of our Lord Jesus and the opposite of what he taught. Remember what he said to his followers, whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave of all, for the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is a dangerous thing to put yourself first, to love being first, to insist on controlling everything and to make inclusion in God's church dependent on agreeing with everything you do and say. And it is dangerous to follow leaders like that. For if they haven't seen God, how can they lead you to the living God or tell you the truth about him? Now, we need to hear that because there's been a fad for strong leaders, right? You know, clear, decisive focus, demanding all your loyalty to achieve the vision they have telling you that you are right following them and all others are wrong or at least not as right. And that kind of leadership can be very seductive. But we have to imitate the good, those who serve Jesus' people simply, simply because they are Jesus' people. Serve them and by serving them are fellow workers for the truth by supporting the work of the gospel wherever it originates at every opportunity. Well, John finishes his letter by giving Gaius an opportunity to keep on doing good by welcoming Demetrius, who comes commended by John and the truth itself. But I want to ask you, do you know you are part of something bigger? As a believer, you should know that by God's grace you have been caught up in his great purpose, that the Lord Jesus be saviour of the world. And it's good from time to time not only to know it, but to let yourself feel part of something bigger. And we might have different ways of doing that. For me, it's sharing in the work of the Gospel Coalition. For you, it might be singing with hundreds or thousands of others from all sorts of churches that say a national training event or a convention or whatever. It is good to feel part of something bigger. But, you know, it's most important, not just that we feel that we're part of something bigger, but that we live lives that show we are part of something bigger, part of God's great purpose to have a people of his own for every nation. And today, John has shown you one important way of doing that, by supporting others, even strangers, who leave their homes and work because they're moved by a desire for Jesus' honour and reputation, moved by that desire to make his truth known to those who have not yet heard it, those still enslaved to idols. And it is an important way, an important way because a willingness to be fellow workers in this way is diagnostic of our hearts. It reveals whether we love other believers simply because they are Jesus' people and we love him. 
It reveals whether we love those who are perishing without the gospel enough to spend our money so that they can hear the truth that will save them. It reveals whether we think Jesus is in charge of his mission, not us, and can send whoever he wants. And it reveals whether our motivation for the work of spreading the gospel involvement in church, say, is love of Jesus and his people and not love of our own program, our group, our reputation. It's an important way. It's a diagnostic way of actually sharing in this bigger purpose. But it is only one way. For the same heart that loves Jesus and wants him glorified as he is, the saviour of the world in saving others and loves people, Jesus' people for Jesus' sake, will be active wherever the Lord Jesus has put us, will be active locally. Active in making the truth of Jesus known here, in calling people to repentance and faith here, in making disciples here. You see, the danger for us where we have opportunities to support many good gospel workers is actually the danger of outsourcing, thinking it's enough that we just pay money to keep those more gifted or talented in the field. Or it's the danger of thinking all the good, all the exciting work is done elsewhere and God has no work to do here and we miss the need, which is great in our increasingly pagan society where we live amongst many people from all over the world, some of whom have never heard of Jesus. We miss the need and we miss the opportunity. Brothers and sisters, the fields around us are white for harvest. The big purpose of God wants to include the people we live amongst. If we're believers in the Lord Jesus, we are part of something bigger. God's great purpose to have a people for his own from every nation, tongue, people. A purpose he gave his son to realise. I hope you know that. I hope you feel it. But more, I hope you show that we, our fellow workers with the truth in this great purpose, both by ourselves making disciples of Jesus, by making his gospel known here, and by supporting all those the Lord brings to us who are going out into the world for the sake of his name to declare the saving truth of Jesus. And that we do that knowing that what we do for them, we do for our Lord, who has loved us, who has saved us, and who will keep and provide for us. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that we would receive this word for our good and that where we've let our lives become just focused on ourselves and our own immediate concerns and shut others out, shown no interest in work beyond us, we pray that you would grant us the gift of repentance, that we would turn away from this self-preoccupation. And Father, we pray that where we are tempted to love preeminence, and that motivates what we do amongst your people or in our families, we pray that you would convict us of that. 
and you would make us long to be like our Lord Jesus, who humbled himself to put the interests of others ahead of his own, our interests in dying for us. And Father, we pray that we would so trust you, that we would know that you would always provide for us all we need to do your goodwill here and in supporting others. And gracious Father, we pray you would raise up amongst us and from us many who will take your gospel into the world, who will promote Jesus' glory by proclaiming him as he is, the saviour of the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.